And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Kutshit Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Kutshit Podcast. And welcome back to our seventh year. Am I? Are we beginning our seventh year? We now? are in our seventh year, Gary. We started a little oh while ago. God. I know. It's like I'm feeling old and undercompensated. Well, on uh, yeah, the compensation we've gotten for this, we get compensation in in, in, in attention and love and respect. No, but, no, I've been looking at the Nora Jemison Patreon, Gary. I want the money. Oh, okay. Well, we're not going to start a Patreon for this. Why not? It'd be lovely. It's, okay, we'll start a Patreon or whatever. My point is, uh, we should congratulate each other on enjoying each other's company for six full years. I noticed that on your Facebook page you put up a recording of as, – as you called me earlier this evening, I was actually listening to our first podcast, which didn't even announce a podcast. So I was trying to think, when did we start with the Cood Street Motel 6? When did we start with the Gershwin Room? When did when did all this sort of thing – Probably. The first podcast was, was – was, it sounded like it sounded like eavesdropping on a conversation, which is essentially what it was. Well, that's, that's exactly what it was back then. Um, I think, and I'd have to go back and listen, and probably actually somebody like Kat, you know, Kat Sparks, who's crazy enough to have listened to them all regularly, could pin it down. But my guess, probably you're about two months in before it all takes you know, shape. I think, I think actually, if you were to look back, the, act, the, the thing that happened is that when I wrote up the notes for the first episode, uh-huh. I think I made some throwaway comment about, well, we'll be back next week. And so we thought, uh-huh. oh, well, we'll do it again. And, of course, at that stage, you and I were talking every week anyway, right? Anyway. And then it was like, well, we're doing one every week. It's a weekly podcast. Without ever thinking about the fact that it was a weekly podcast and we would end up doing 300 of them or something. Which is astonishing. And, uh, and so, so now I've... And I've told you before, and I've mentioned several times on the podcast, I cannot stand to listen to myself. I don't want to hear how dumb I sound. But now I'm curious because yesterday, uh, as we record this yesterday, uh, you'd put up the episode with Harlan and, and Bill Schaefer uh, yeah. for his 82nd birthday. Happy birthday, Harlan. And I was thinking, okay, I have not listened to that yet. But I was thinking, we've done some pretty impressive discussions, not because of us, but because of some of our guests. And Well... Um, I think, and I agree with you, I think what happened, what's happened is if you go back and listen to the first episode again, mm-hmm. um, if you're kind to us, you would say that like, like jazz masters, Gary, we riff on the same themes. Mm-hmm. If you're unkind, you'd say we just have nothing else to say. However, <laughs> when we bring in guests, it opens everything up. We talk about different things in different ways. We interact right. with their thoughts on the subject. So we talk to people like Nikki Solway or James Bradley or Sam Delaney or Parlin Ellison or Elizabeth Hand or Kids Johnson or those sorts of people, uh, particularly the people who come in regularly and they give uh-huh. the whole thing a different flavor and they, they help shape that conversation. And I think that's Absolutely. Good. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, I, I, I think that you're right. We tend to come back to some of the same themes, but some of those themes never go away. I was I was ten minutes into our first podcast, and we were talking about guess what? We were talking about the fact that Ted Chang doesn't write very often. That's true. Uh, this is still true. It's so true. we were ahead of our time. We were also uh, we were talking about we, we, we talked about the fact that Stephen Baxter writes a lot, which he still does. We also talked about what makes a book important. 
We talked about yeah. awards. We talked about reviewing. We talked about how you choose a book to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are probably useful... This is why we always needed, Gary, both a audio person to fix up the horrible audio and we needed a producer to help organize us because there are good little feature things we've done that we haven't kept up because this is all just us riffing and, hey, guys, yeah. there is no Patreon. You're getting it all for free. So, um, you know, it, it is what it is. Oh. It's, but I guess what I mean is an unplanned, evolving conversation. But what that means is that, you know, that books you don't have to read thing that we did. Yeah, I remember that. Um, we don't come back to that. We don't turn around and say, hey, you know, you don't have, by the way, we didn't mention this, but you don't really have to read such and such. Um, no. and it had its point. I mean, the whole, obviously the whole point of that was to sort of make a, a slight gesture, at least towards demystifying the canon, uh, breaking it up a little bit so that, you know, you weren't always having, thinking, oh my God, well, I can't possibly get around to reading, you know, the Anne Leckie book because there's, uh, you know, 50 years of space opera preceding it that contextualizes well, exactly. it. Yeah, and we were basically saying that uh, you, there there are certain books that are classics, and we weren't saying you shouldn't read them. We're simply saying that if you know sort of generally the folk history of science fiction, if you know what to expect from the Martian Chronicles, which was one of my choices, then reading a book isn't going to surprise you a lot. Uh, I was reading just this evening, uh, one of the books, were, one of the things I hope we'll talk about tonight is books we're looking forward to, and there's a new Michael Swanwick collection of stories coming out from Tachyon, uh, not so much said the cat, and his introduction makes an interesting point. He says he might have been the last science fiction reader, writer who could read pretty much everything, every, all the short fiction. He studied short fiction, he deliberately collaborated with Gardner, Desois, and Jack Dan, and Eileen Gunn. He was a really serious student of it, and and he felt like he had to keep up with all the short fiction, especially when he was uh, on a nebula jury one year. And it's interesting. I don't know if he, and he's not that old a writer either, but is he really the last generation of writers who pretty much knew all of science fiction? Well, I would pin arbitrarily, completely arbitrarily, without mm-hmm. thinking about it, Let's say the benchmark year is about 1985, mm-hmm. maybe 1990. Let's say 1990. A- after 1990, you got no hope. No hope, no. Uh, so if you pin it at 1990, no. I would say there are people alive, you know, writers who were born in, say, 1970, Mm-hmm. would still have a chance of ha- having had a moment when they read everything. They probably never felt consistently like they were because it was already beginning to spiral away from them. It may well be probably more accurately that Michael is a, a, a part of the last generation to feel like they were reading everything. In fact, that's probably far truer. It, it probably is true, and it, and it has to do in, 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 in to make sure I'm not misrepresenting Michael's introduction. He was doing this to learn his craft. Hmm. He was not doing this as a science fiction fan, as a science fiction casual reader. He wanted to know how science fiction stories worked, and he would take them apart, as he said, cogged by sentence, and figure that out. The average reader doesn't need to do that. My point is that the average, there's no such thing as an average writer, I guess. But a younger writer today, uh, a, uh, I don't, we've mentioned names, we could mention names from here on out, we could uh, talk about Kelly Robson or, or Rachel Swirsky or Sam Miller. 
I don't think they feel the need to do that, and I don't think they should feel the need to do that. No, I don't. I don't think that. The, well, okay. I don't think that any writer should necessarily feel the need to be aware of everything in the field, read everything, whatever else. However, the core of what Michael was trying to do is something they do need to do. They do need to at least look to great examples of the craft and how they work in order to help understand how to form their own craft. You know, because let, let's, let's take Rachel, Rachel Swirsky as an example. Terrific writer. Uh-huh. Written some mm-hmm. truly wonderful, wonderful stories. Reads a lot, writes a lot. I don't think she would profess to have read any everything ever written, but she still studies her craft. I mean, I mean, look, look, look at our conversation last year at World Fantasy Convention with Elizabeth Bear and Scott Lynch. Uh-huh. There are two people who plainly study their craft. They think about it, right? And they think about it in evolutionary terms, in terms of science fiction and fantasy. They do. They spent time pulling things apart. It educates them in their in their self chosen you know, careers of writing science fiction and fantasy. I guess the people who don't need to write uh, read a lot of science fiction and fantasy are, in fact, the kind of writers who aren't trying to be science fiction and fantasy writers, but who incidentally write science fiction and fantasy. Uh, that's an interesting distinction because I was going to mention that Rachel, for example, uh, I believe, went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. So, which is a a classic, famous uh, workshop of very, um, very traditional literary values, I guess. So, learning your craft as a short fiction writer, in terms of something like the Iowa Writers Workshop, or in terms of something like reading New Yorker stories, or Harper's stories, or Joyce Carol Oates stories, or George Saunders stories, to get closer to our field, that's learning craft in one way. Learning craft in another way, I think, goes back to uh, an era in which style and characterization and what we call literary values weren't that central. Writers of a certain generation, um, probably mine actually, were worried that they might accidentally reinvent the wheel. They might write a science fiction idea that that Heinlein or Asimov or Clark or Bradbury or Sturgeon or somebody had already done. I think that they were not concerned about writing it better there, there are any number of stories I can think of by younger writers who are very good that conceptually aren't terribly original, but that are really, really well written. The quality of writing in the field is higher than it was during the Golden Age, which sounds like sacrilege to a certain generation of fans. Oh, Barry Mollsberg would fight you to the, to, to the death over it. Well, Barry Mollsberg would fight me to the death over it, but we, if we were to take an example, if we were to take the classic example, which we've come back to again and again in the many years of the Coot Street podcast, which, thank heavens, is not indexed anywhere. You look at responses to the cold equations. Uh, two, two that come to mind immediately are, um, okay, it's not coming to mind immediately. The most recent one is Yoon Ha Lee's, uh, but the earlier one than that would have been um, um, Jim Kelly's, James Patrick Kelly's. Both of those novels are, both of those stories, both Yoon Ha Lee's story uh, and James Patrick Kelly's story, are far better written than anything Tom Godwin wrote in his life. Well, okay, that's probably true on a sentence-by-sentence basis, but I would put to you that, say, Barry Molesburg would say, I think, call, harking back to the, co- the conversation we did with him, and yeah. Bob Silverberg would probably say, based on conversations I've had with him, that, in fact... The, uh, not the line by line prose, but the, 
the brick by brick structuring stories was much more refined in the 50s than it is today. That people were better structural storytellers than that then than they are now. I'm not a hundred percent convinced by this, but that's uh-huh. an argument I've heard put. There was a the, the, the story construction in a commercial sense. This is how you put a story together to sell it to to Campbell or Gold or or or, or, or Terry Carr or whoever. Uh, I think that the, I think that you grew up learning that sort of thing. Okay, somebody else who recently had an 85th birthday, even older than Harlan. A couple of weeks ago was Gene Wolfe. He learned in that world. He learned in the world of, of of the 70s how to structure stories like that. And fairly early on realized he didn't want to just know how to do that. He wanted to do something different. He started writing the stories that eventually you know, became the fifth head of Cerberus. Uh, much more complicated kinds of things. Is a key genius of his, though, uh, that he has in his toolkit all the tools that he learned in the 70s of structuring stories really, really well, so that he can play off that when he's doing all the other artistic things he wants to do. That's a fair point. And I think you're absolutely right. I think if, uh, if, if, if there are still a generation of writers, and, and Bob Silverberg is one and Gene Wolfe is another, and they're very different writers. But if you ask them to write a story tomorrow that would fit into an astounding or an analog in 1977... They could both do it. They both know how to do that. But isn't that a little bit like, uh, you know, learning the standards uh, and, and and then wanting to make your own music based on what you've learned from the standards? It is a little bit. And I guess one of the things that, that is true, if you want to use a me- music metaphor that doesn't quite fit, there are people who come into science fiction who want to be Brad Meldow, the pianist who... Played with some, yeah. who plays a lot of standards variations, who want right. to be um, Winfred Marsalis, who play exactly that kind of thing, and are intimately aware of the history of what they're doing, and are looking to evolve it. And then there are people who want to come in completely cold and just do their thing, which is completely valid as well. Right. And I, I guess my point is that if somebody, and I've, I've criticized people for this, so I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm making a point which I in the past have argued with. If somebody uh, who is a mainstream writer comes in, okay, let's take Philip Roth for an example. We could take any number of mainstream writers. Margaret Atwood actually is, 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 is a complicated case. <clears throat> it's very easy to say, all right, this is a bad retread of a Cordwainer Smith story from 50 years ago or, or, or whatever. Um, but if it's better done, uh, then, then you have to, you know, say there's more to the story than the idea. Here's another example. I was just reading about, uh, I've got the third volume of Justin Cronin's trilogy. A literary writer, one of the people who was widely sort of uh, looked askance at when he came into the field because he was not a science fiction and fantasy writer. But it turns out that his, one of the major influences on his trilogy, apparently according to some interview with him, was George R. Stewart's Earth Abides. So he, he, he knew what he was riffing on. He knew pretty much something of the background there. Uh, I think from what I've heard of George Saunders, he knew something about it. All I'm saying is you don't need to know everything. You no, don't no, need no. to know every story, every story idea that was ever in Astounding is not necessarily part of your background. Absolutely not. And the other thing, which obviously, and this is a common riff in the last two years mm-hmm. of this podcast, 
is that you also have to acknowledge different traditions and that sometimes, sometimes the way these things get used is differently. I mean, we see, mm-hmm. you know, Jeff and Ann Vandermeer putting out the big book of science fiction next month, the month after, I think it is. And it has a, a wide variety of traditions of science fiction. Uh-huh. We've got Jeff Ryman, uh, is currently, I don't know if you're, are you aware of his 101 African Writers Project? I've heard of it, yes. And he's, he's well, it's, it's, it's starting to come to fruition. I think some of it will show up on Tor.com. Wonderful. And we're going to get the first, well, the first major that I know of, cross-section view of science fiction writing and fantasy writing, uh, speculative traditions probably more likely across mm-hmm. the African continent through different countries, particularly places like Nigeria and Mali and places like that. So that's going to be really interesting. Uh, and that they, I'm sure, even if they're aware of the Gernsback continuum, approach it from a totally different mindset. Just as people in Eastern Europe would, just as people in uh, through Southeast Asia do. So you know, mm-hmm. we're seeing d- d- we need different tools for assessing it. Particularly, I, I think it's particularly germane that we acknowledge that, and that the field acknowledges that when you consider the political um, situation we're in in science fiction right now. You know, we live in the in the sort of Chuck Tingle versus Vox Day universe right now. Uh-huh. So acknowledging greater variety is an important thing. I think it's an important thing, and I think one of the things the Vandermeer anthology is doing is making an argument which is counter to a lot of traditional definitive science fiction anthologies, in that it, the argument is not that science fiction has now expanded uh, to include the world. Their argument is that science fiction, or some version of it, has always existed in India, in Africa, in Japan, in Europe, and South America. Uh, which is a completely defensible point of view, uh, and it's. It, but, but by the same token, we would not expect um, writers of uh, of science fiction in any particular country or any particular culture to be familiar with all the works of other cultures. No, no. Uh, th- hopefully, the difference though is we're moving from a situation where the Gernsback continuum of science fiction is mm-hmm. a global colonizing force. Where it only goes one way. Um, I, th- I think that's true. I think we're beginning to get some, some, something of a feedback loop. No, I, I don't think it's anywhere nearly as um, influential as it could be. No. I mean, it, it's still. Uh, we've got uh, one of the forthcoming books to look for this year. We're talking about is another Su Xian Lu novel. We now are aware of Chinese science fiction in a way that nobody was ten or twenty years ago. Uh, is that beginning to sort of enter the dialogue? I don't know, because Susan Liu, of all people, happens to be a writer who's responding to Asimov and Clark and Heinlein. He grew up reading American science fiction. Um, there are there have always been writers like Amitabh Ghosh in India, for example, who, who brought a different perspective to science fiction, but it was pretty clear, I'm thinking of his novel, The Calcutta Chromosome, it's pretty clear that he'd been reading American science fiction as well. Uh, so th- there, there's still that there's still that imperialist sort of advantage that Anglo-American science, Anglo-American, I guess we should include Australian in that uh, English language science fiction has had. Your, I cannot hear sorry, you. Sorry, if, if we expand it to English, well, to science fiction and fantasy, I think. Mm-hmm. We have always struggled to incorporate those traditions into 
what we have. And there's a range of reasons for that, not the least being you can't mm. also be that, you know, the, be, it's a colonizing thing and you can't be going into, into other countries and taking this stuff away and repurposing it. Right now, no. there's, a, there's a television series coming out here and made partly in Australia and may, and coming out in the States called Clever Man, right? I've seen, I've seen, I've seen stuff about that. Yeah, yeah. And the, the Clever Man, and we've talked about it in the podcast briefly before. Clever Man, uh, takes Aboriginal mythological, Australian Aboriginal mythological uh-huh. traditions and religious traditions, uh, and that's something that needs to be treated very carefully, very respectfully, uh-huh. because those traditions are, I mean, they're still alive. I mean, we, how comfortable is the West if you turn around and, and when you start articulating the, the, the Christian Bible as fantasy, mm-hmm. not very comfortable. You know, it's like, it's still to be done. I'm not articulating this well. There is another book actually out there, Gary. Uh, um. and to say that I'm looking forward to this, I would look forward to someone giving me this. Uh, are you aware of the Folio Society? I'm aware of the of the existence of the Folio Society. What are they doing now? Okay, the Folio Society, and we've talked about them here before because they did mm-hmm. that absurd edition of June last year yeah. for the 50th anniversary. They've just published an anthology of Chinese fairy tales and fantasies, mm. illustrated by Victor Nye. Who was a ah. just a stunning artist, beautiful, beautiful book, uh, and the kind of thing which would be a joy for anyone to 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 own. And these are all fresh translations by someone called Moss mm. Roberts. I mean, if you want to talk, let's say, uh, to talk about books you're looking forward to, to owning or whatever else, this is the kind of thing. But also, it's a whole other tradition. I mean, th- this is a a what a Western snapshot of Eastern fantasy, fairy tales, mythology, whatever else. Mm. And the kind of thing that we need to be aware of and to see how, 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 how we bring that into what we're aware of when we become aware of the kind of stuff that Ken Liu brings to us. Ken Liu brings that to us, and and, and, and you're right. Jeff Ryman is working on this. Nadia Korofor has certainly promoted uh, uh, African science fiction, Nigerian science fiction, and fantasy. The problem is, you're right. On the one hand, we need to pay attention to this. It should be part of the dialogue. Selected non-English language writers have always been part of the dialogue. You've always had science fiction writers uh, or fantasy writers responding to Kafka. Uh, and and, and you, you get the occasional Murakami, and you get the occasional Umberto Eco. But the question then is, if you absorb these other cultural traditions and try to respond to them in some way, you run up against the cultural appropriation problem. You do. How do you deal with this? I How don't does- know. I mean... Uh, when uh, Cara Dalkey writes Oriental fantasies, mm-hmm. when Barry Huart writes Oriental comic fantasies, well, you know, uh, and you could have, as far as that, that matter, how, despite good intention, how far distant is that from the Orientalism of the 1930s and 40s pulp fiction? Well, it's pretty far away from that, I think. But Orientalism by itself is a problematical term. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it does deal with a certain exotic uh, valorization of, 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 the, of the Arabian Nights. The Arabian Nights, oh, that's another good example of a what used to be called an Oriental uh, text. There was a classic work of literary criticism, which I know is not a field you're interested in, but there was a, a professor named Edward Said, uh, who wrote a book called Orientalism, which is about Western attitudes toward the Orient and specifically in terms of literature. 
And it was fascinating about how loosely we appropriate ideas from um, from the Thousand and One Nights. And Disney movies, you've got a lot, all, all this sort of thing. And never really think about what that represents in terms of how that culture is represented. And yet you don't want to ignore those because that's that particular uh, quote-unquote oriental text is one of the great cauldrons of storytelling in the world. I mean, anybody who's writing fantasy should know the Thousand and One Nights. But at the same time, you can't pretend to own them. You can't pretend to own them. You have to be very careful of retelling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that does f- fall into this whole appropriation issue. And I can't pretend to know that I've got an intelligent thought on how to ad- address this other than being sensitive and respectful. Um, it feels unreasonable to suggest to any artist that they shouldn't be able to, to, to uh, embrace those influences and those ideas and those concepts. But how you, how you em- embrace that and then externalize it in your, your art, whether it be fiction or whatever else. And not and, and still do justice to the source. That I'm, I'm, I'm less. I'm not sure. I have an answer to that. I'm not sure I have an answer to it, but I think there are examples. I think, for example, if you look at uh, Native American literature, that some of Le Guin's stories and Buffalo Gals and uh, uh, where, where she makes use of coyote tales. Now, Le Guin grew up in a family of anthropologists. She grew up with uh, an, a Native American in her household when she was a kid. Uh, and she's a really, really, really good writer. So you can do this, I think, uh, if you pay enough attention to what you're dealing with and if you try to get inside it. If you do it the way too many science fiction writers have done it, then you're, then you're in danger of returning to the yellow menace pulse yeah. of the ninth. And I, and I have to say, the yellow menace is on my mind, Gary. Which might seem a very strange thing to say. It is a strange thing to be on your mind. I have just- By the way, just, just a, just a footnote. From what I've read, uh, Australian literature wasn't much better than American literature in dealing with the Yellow Peril. Or anything else. No, no, no. Or anything, well, yeah. Australia is, Australian literature, Australian arts, Australian culture, Australia mm-hmm. is, is no less, uh, immune from criticism for the way it has, uh, existed over the last century or more. That's absolutely true. The, the treatment in art, in culture, and in real life of the, uh, First Australians is lamentable mm-hmm. at best, despite even incredible good intentions, still lamentable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way we have dealt with, if you like, the feeling of being a Western country in Asia is incredibly problematic. Mm-hmm. And, 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 it's, uh, well, and, 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 well, this has been one of Greg Egan's major issues, I gather, as well as immigration issues and refugee issues and that sort of thing. Immigration issues are a spectacularly large issue in this country and you know, will mm-hmm. have, have been for decades and will remain so. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's not just a matter of building a wall between here and Mexico. Uh, it's a lot more. But then there's also this feeling of threatened cultural identity by a fairly entitled first world group of people. You have a Western European country that's formed in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that feels threatened by being in Southeast Asia. Certainly did in the 50s and 60s, you know, and is only reluctantly coming to terms with that, that role of being an, an Asian country. I mean, one of Australia's prime ministers, Paul Keating, talked very much about becoming an Asian country. Uh-huh. And there is 
there's some wisdom in that. I mean, we are a strange transplant. You know, we, we don't fit well. So, I, Yeah, I, I didn't mean to get us off on no, that no. because certainly the United States. But uh, I mean, it, it, it occurred to me as, as, as we were starting to talk about this that, you know, this became an issue of Greg Egan, at least the topic of one of his most humanistic novels, I guess we should say, um, which is the one I'm not blanking on. I'm blanking on the title of it right now. But the point, to get back to our original point, uh, the idea of dialoguing with other cultures without trying to overwhelm them has been a problem of Western literature since we could call it Western literature. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, 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 it's certainly is something that, that, that Britain is concerned with. Uh, it's something that the United States ought to be concerned with and sometimes has. Um, but I think that some writers feel intimidated about trying to deal with those issues simply because of the fact that there's a real danger of getting it wrong. Yeah. And the danger of getting it wrong is borne out by the fact that for most of the history of science fiction, to get back to science fiction, or the history of fantasy, to get back to the history of fantasy, for most of the history, it's been gotten wrong. Yeah. Um, and not, I'm not just talking about the Oriental menace pulps, the yellow peril pulps. Um, there were some uh, sympathetic writers uh, of fantasy, especially Lafcadio Hearn, Ernst Brahma, who, uh, uh, who wrote things based on Oriental fictions that were trying to understand it, and they were still westernized interpretations of uh, of Japanese or uh, Chinese stories. So and, and I don't know how you solve that problem. I don't know how you do. I mean, many people are attempting to, but, but I don't know what the solution is. I know what I was going to say. The reason that I was thinking about the, the, the uh, Yellow mm -hmm. Menace is because I have just concluded editing Passing Strange, a major, actually very major new novella by Ellen Clagius that will come out mm -hmm. next February probably from Tor.com. Mm -hmm. And it does touch on exactly some of these things about representation, about inclusion, uh, in a very, I think, intelligent and sensitive way. I mean, you've read a version of the story. And, right, I have read And it. I do think it is one of her very best works. Uh, I, it's also an issue that I know Ellen has been concerned with before. This has to deal with, um, um, well, it has to do with all kinds of minority groups. It obviously has to do deal with with, with with sexual minorities, with ethnic minorities, with national minorities, with immigrant minorities. And all these things come together in, in, in a way that's very sensitive. And I know Ellen has done at least one or two stories that touch upon the Holocaust. Very sensitive area. And the, the question comes up, and this is not at all what I thought this podcast was going to be no. about. Who has permission to do that? And I think about when we talked to Lavi Tidar a few, few weeks ago, and he made the point, which probably is a valid point that as, as someone raised on a kibbutz, surrounded in his childhood by Holocaust survivors, he has permission to do some things that other writers might not have permission to do. Let me put um, a, a different angle there. Let me interrupt. Sorry. And maybe uh -huh. I, I should have put this to, to, to Levy. I mean, is the issue, I mean, okay. Does Levy need to ask permission? Does any artist need to ask permission, or do they need to accept that they may need to ask for forgiveness? That you take your best shot in good faith, and you realize that it may not work out. I—that's a problem which is not unique to science fiction, of course. No, I'm, the, no, no. 
the classic American example of that in, in mainstream liter, literary and best-selling fiction was William Styron, who wrote a novel called The Confessions of Nat Turner, which took the point of view of a, of a slave rebellion, uh, and and then wrote Sophie's Choice, which took the point of view of a Polish, uh, not, a, not, not a Polish Jew, uh, just a Polish woman who had to give up one of her children in the, in the Holocaust. And in both cases, he took a lot of flack for that. And yet, in both cases, they're powerful works. Um, would are, are they the best possible works? Probably not. Uh, did he miss some um, nuances? Undoubtedly. Was he being exploitative? I don't think so. I think he really thought these were important issues that he wanted to write about. And so on the one hand, you want to avoid the issue of exploitation and appropriation. On the other hand, you don't want to tell writers that some topics are off limits. I don't think I want to tell writers that any topics are off limits. Uh, But I guess what I would hope to say is that ignorant, insensitive approaches to them are. That's true. And and again, uh, one of the problems that science fiction and fantasy has, going back to... um, there were actually pulp magazines with titles like Oriental Tales and so forth. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, some of those, you, you mentioned the Ellen Clager story. Part of the background of that story is Margaret Brundage, the wonderful Weird Tales artist who did so many covers, which were pretty sometimes racist in terms of their portrayals of Orientals. Um, so, so to some extent, you could say that the ancestry of science fiction and fantasy, at least in the States, has something to answer for. It was very easy to talk about, uh, uh, especially during World War II, when when so much of modern science fiction was being invented in the pages of Astounding. Japs, as they called them, did not come off very well. Good Germans did not krauts, as they called them. But good-hearted Swedish farmers? Science fiction of the 40s was full of good-hearted Swedish farmer types, uh, simply because... They were ethnically acceptable groups to that audience. One of the most interesting things about being in the field today is that there's some really interesting critical voices out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, some who I don't get to, to work with, some who I do. Uh, and I always make a point of you know, reading Nina Allen on, over at her blog. And I make uh-huh. a point of reading Abigail Nussbaum. And it's re- Abigail's particularly relevant to this conversation because uh-huh. she's an Israeli critic. Mm-hmm. If I understand correctly. And she's written a fascinating piece actually about the new Captain America movie, which I recommend people go and look at over at her blog. It's very, very smart. Uh-huh. And an interesting thing about the dangers and offensiveness of using Nazism as a equivalency for evil in fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I did read that out on your recommendation and it's bothered me for a long time. Um, it's bothered me that Nazi zombie movies are. How could I mean? It's 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 a combination of formulas. How can you make a zombie worse than a zombie? You make it a Nazi zombie. Um, and how do you, how do you deal with um, a a thirties superhero? You uh, not a superhero, but a a thirties pulp hero like Indiana Jones. You set him up against the Nazis. Nazis become a kind of shorthand for bad guys. Uh, and, and the X-Men movies have done this, too. The X-Men movies have moved right into, you know, the concentration camps. The Nazis are indefensible evil. 
They're this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah. If it's like if you can't, they're they're the, they're the one group that you can think of as an easy, lazy shorthand that exactly. no one no one will defend. There's no one coming saying right. that's an unfair dep- depiction of Nazis. You're going, they just deserve whatever shit they get. However, Abigail's point basically, which is that that defangs their actual crimes, that it Absolutely. minimizes what they actually were is a very, very valid one and a very concerning and very, you know, real one. It's concerning in another sense as well. And we've talked about this before, where the thriller, the idea of the thriller plot uh, is that you shut down the bad things that are going to happen. Uh, you, you, you you stop the bad guys from taking over the world. You stop, you, you, you stop Dr. No and you, you, you stop Goldfinger and you manage to shut down uh, Jurassic Park before it, the problem with that is that when you use Nazis in that sense, you cannot stop what they have already done. No. No, you can't. The, 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 the absolute appalling crimes are part of history. It's not part of a thriller plot. The, the Nazis want to come back. Okay, that's not a real issue. Nobody in international relations, not even not even the most paranoid American politicians, and we've got some that puts the rest of the world to shame, are worried about Nazis coming back. But you're right. It's an easy shorthand for popular fiction and for popular is, movies. Speaking of uh, popular fiction, I thought we might. Mm-hmm. Are, are we ready for a segue to a different subject, or do you have something else you want to well, say? Well, our subject. We, we 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 have subtly already gotten to our subject a little bit because I mentioned Michael Swanwick's new book of short stories. You mentioned Jeff Ryman putting together an anthology. Is it possible that our topic was going to be books that we want to look forward to? It was indeed. I mean. As, as, as listeners will know, and for people who like this, and hey, I'm going to promote it as this, uh, for, for a little while there, we were doing qu- regular quarterly discussions with Liza Trombi, the editor-in-chief at Locus, to uh-huh. coincide with their quarterly forthcoming books listings. And unfortunately, because we are poorly organized, that has slipped to one side. Uh, unintentionally, and unfortunately because of timing, well, not unfortunately, Liza is, I believe, off with her family enjoying a holiday long weekend for something or other there in America. Memorial, Memorial Day. Day. It's Memorial Day in the United States. What are you memorying? We're, we're talking, Memorial Day is for people who are dead. Uh, I, it's, <laughs> well, just any random day. dead people or just, specific just, dead people? The Whatever dead people you got. Okay, okay. So, so she's off celebrating random dead people day in the... Not hip- random. It's, it's, it's family members. It's a holiday. On Monday... Hang on, no, 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 no. You guys have a public holiday to remember dead family members? It may not be just dead family members. Because that's a bit freaky sounding, you know, frankly. That's a little bit weird. You're you're, you're playing with me. You lived in the States. You know what Memorial Day is. You are absolutely simply trying to make me feel like a complete idiot, yeah, yeah, which yeah. I am because I'm not exactly okay. so anyway, was... it's, it's, it's the first long weekend of the long late spring, early summer or whatever. Whatever. They're off having a barbecue and going up in the country or something. People people up in Madison, Wisconsin are having Wiscon as we speak. Yeah, well, yeah, they'll do that. Which is fine. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> you were talking about Liza, who's off with her family because of Memorial Day, but normally we would be talking with Liza about uh, the forthcoming books over the next few months. Yes. And what are we looking forward to? And what, what are we dreading? Do we dare talk about that? Oh, Lord, no. Oh, come on. You can't <laughs> do that. Oh. You see, the, you know the problem with that statement, Gary? 
all I can think of now. There are names blazing in fl- flaming letters in front of me a foot high about how I never want to read a book by again. Mm-hmm. Or I never want to read a book by ever. You know? So, yeah, thanks for that. What I was actually thinking about... John Ryder's that- new book out in November. Mm-hmm. John C. Ryder's new book out in November from Tor. Um... I've got this list here, and somehow that's that's not on it. I don't know why. Funny thing is, I read a couple of novels by him that were pretty good a long time ago. Oh, yeah. So, um, let's... Shall we just start out throwing out titles? Okay. How how about... are, Are you up for a copy of Pounded by My Handsome Ghost Boats? What are you talking about? Or Pounded in the Butt by My Hugo Nomination? Um, this is not what I had in mind. I thought we were going to talk about. <laughs> oh, how about this one? This this is actually one I think we should all get a copy of. Should be out soon. Angry Man Pounded by the Fear of His Latent Gayness Over a Dinosaur Transitioning into a Unicorn by Chuck Single. I think we all need to okay. buy a copy of that. All right, fine. <laughs> Moving uh, on from Chuck Single. <laughs> You're... We, we, Coot Street listeners should know that Jonathan is going to go on vacation very shortly, and he's clearly become delirious in anticipation over his couple of weeks off in the wilds of central Italy, apart from having to deal with me or Coot Street or anything resembling reality. I envy that more than I can say. <laughs> well, okay, so the June issue of Locus will hit the stands in a couple of days. It'll be sent out uh-huh. in email. It will feature a stirring installment of forthcoming books, which will cover through till I think about March of 2017. Uh-huh. But I did say to you, Gary, how about we have a little chat about the books we're looking forward to that we've not discussed yet on the podcast. That's what I like between to do. Between here I've not seen the, and Christmas. I've not, I've not seen the June issue. I've seen the previous issue, which I think was the a- April, May issue or something like that. Um, so I have some things in mind, and some of them are odd. Some of them are oddball things. Uh, and I, um, I'll start with, let me start with three things coming out shortly from Small Beer Press. One is John Crowley's modern version of A Chemical Wedding, which he argues may have been the first science fiction novel from, I'm forgetting exactly when it first appeared, the 15th or 16th century, maybe. Um, and he's sort of rewritten it in, into a modern, I'm not sure what it is at all. Well, but actually, Crowley- okay. I was hoping right right there that you could bring me up to speed on this mysterious project that makes no sense to me at all, Gary. I don't mm-hmm. understand this project. Is this John writing a novel that uses the material from that? Is it this John translating something? Is this John adding presentational material around the original text? What is it? I don't know about presentational material, and we should probably ask John about that directly. My understanding is that it is his retelling, not quite a translation, but a kind of modernization of a book which appeared in several hundred years ago by the author, I don't remember. It's a book I've heard of for years. It's a book which has been out there. It's one of the kind of the uh, bizarre kind of proto-fantasy books that is based on uh, early Renaissance science. So his argument is that maybe the first science fiction story. Uh, John has done things like this before with the green 
the, the, the Green Child uh, story from medieval England, and I think he may be interested in doing that as well. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a beautifully well-produced book, but beyond that, I'm not exactly sure what it's going to look like. Okay. All I know is that from the point of view of writers we've talked about, and you talked about writing sentence by sentence, Crowley is one of the writers that I will read simply to see his sentences. Fair enough. He, he writes absolutely elegant, well-shaped sentences, um, and uh, looking at uh, the uh, stories that were in antiquities, which which related to medieval uh, sources as well. I'm looking forward to that. Another writer who's also a small beer writer as of now is Jeff Ford, who's got, I guess, a collection of short stories called The Natural History of Hell. And again, somebody who... Um, is always unexpected. And let me, I don't know what stories are in a natural history of health, but one of the things that made me think that Jeff Ford, once I think I've got my eye on Jeff Ford, he does something that completely reverses my understanding of what he can do, was the story he put in your anthology, Drowned World, which is the only story in it that doesn't have anything to do with the drowned world at all. That, that is, Jeff, it didn't really help. I mean, you know, I actually was queried by the publisher on that one. Did it really belong in the book? But I think well, the, 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 it's there was a drowned world off beyond the borders of the story. Uh, yes. But it was a brutal story. It was a Cormac McCarthy brutal story. It was just really tough minded. Yeah. Uh, and Jeff has written things like The uh, the Empire of Ice Cream. He's, uh, he's written some of my favorite stories. And when he has a new collection out, uh, what impresses me about that, what makes me look forward to it, even though I know I will have read a number of the stories in it, is that it's not going to look like the last collection. No, no. I, th- I, I mean, I've read a goodly number of the stories that are in the, the new in the new book, and there's some great stuff. I published one of them, the Prelates Commission mm-hmm. at Subterranean, which I loved at mm-hmm. the time and still do. Though it never, I never felt it got got the attention that it deserved. Uh, but some great stories, Blood Drive, A Terror, which is a great story, The Time Fiend, which is in my latest year's best, uh, The Fairy Enterprise, which uh-huh. is a lovely story, and One the title th- story, Natural History Autumn, which is great, or semi-title story. And the third small beer title, which I had on my list, and I don't know why we're starting with publishers, but small beer Indeed. is doing advanced things. They're, they're going to publish the selected nonfiction of Ursula K. Le Guin. Another writer that, if you want to know how to write sentences, read anything. Speaking of something like that, I don't know that I'm looking forward to this per se, but I noticed that come December, one of the big university presses is publishing the first volume of the diaries of Samuel R. Delaney. I did not know that. That probably ha- almost has to be Wesleyan. I, I think it is. Um, so, yeah, that, that's coming out December. Okay. And isn't actually on my list because I don't know that I'm particularly interested, but should be very interesting. Uh, okay. It, it- It'll be fascinating. So what, what have you got? See, I organized mine by date of publication, Gary, because oh, that's how I roll. Okay. The first book that I'm looking forward to, I'm not looking forward to. Oh. I'm not looking forward to because I've already read it. Ah. The first book that I'm looking forward to comes out in July. Uh, it's Angela Slatter's debut novel, Vigil, mm-hmm. which is an urban fantasy novel set in the streets of uh, Brisbane in uh, Queensland. Ah, first of a series. Uh, I think I described it as being, oh, what's it like? It's like Jim Butcher meets the Sue Graft- Grafton books, but with more oomph. And I, actually, I gotta say, I really, really enjoy it. The very, very first binder book, uh, coming out now. I completely misread the cover, but the book is great. It's really good. 
Excellent. Really interesting thing that's coming out in September from our friends at Tachyon. Since you did three, I'll do three. Coming out from our friends at Tachyon is the first Peter Beagle novel in well, well, well over a decade. Many, some, many years ago, back when Nightshade Books was still owned by its original proprietors, they bought an earlier version of a book called Summerlong, uh-huh. which I read back, back in the day and I think has been rewritten somewhat. And this is a real sort of bittersweet tale, passion, enchantment, the nature of fate, a uh, younger woman, an older man, um, and that kind of really elegiac fantasy that uh, he does so, so very, very, very well, you know, that there's really no one quite like Beagle out there. You know, he, he is sort of science fiction's modern Jewish uncle storyteller kind of thing. Well, and I, so, you know. Yeah, I wonder if there, because increasingly his short fiction has had autobiographical elements in it. And his uncles who are artists in New York and so forth and so on. Uh, and to some extent, he's returned to some of the source material of uh, his first novel, A Fine and Private Place. Yeah. And so I've always wanted to see this dealt with from a kind of, uh, the mature beagle. This is actually in, in California. This isn't that. This isn't the old streets of, uh, of, of New, New York, York at all. No, no. This is the, okay. uh, certainly on the California coast. It sounds wonderful. Uh, and so again, some, uh, so, so, so this deals with sort of like, if you like, the semi-autobiographical late middle-aged Peter Beagle kind of thing. Okay. And I really liked it. Uh, and as the, the third of my books, I guess, I'll pick Everfair by Nisi Shaw, which is coming out from Tor. It's her debut novel. No, not her debut. I think it's a major novel. And this is a a steampunk fantasy, which is not really kind of my sort of thing. But about seven years ago, Nisi was on a panel with the Vandermeers and Mike Swanwick Uh and Liz Gorinsky and Debbie and Cotty talking about what fantasy could be for. And she's taken it and she's inverted it to include sort of the the voices of Africans and East Asians and African-Americans and change the whole approach of it. And I'm really, really intrigued by this. And I know she's been working on it for a long time. And it it, it was on my list as well, as a matter of fact. Uh, I just checked it off. And uh, uh, I I think that, well, okay, that's, that's, that's one of the things I'm thinking. Let me ask you about a couple of things I don't know much about, Mm -hmm. but I've seen. One is, um, it looks like a new Significant novel from Walter John Williams. It's not a novel at all, Gary. It's not? Impersonations is a 55,000, well, 55,000 word short novel or super long novelette, a novella, sorry, set in the world of the Praxis stories featuring the lead, the lead, um, character from the the Praxis books. Okay. uh, Caro Sula. It's terrific. I mean, I've read it, so. Okay. Well, you mentioned novellas then. One of the other things, which I just finished reading, as a matter of fact, um, novellas are becoming a thing. And I, I don't know if the Tor.com thing has helped this or, uh, or, or what, but uh, China Miegel's The Last Days of New Paris is his second novella in a row. Um, the first one, the, this census taker, was I, I know it puzzled a lot of his readers, uh, and I thought it dealt with a lot of issues that are very important to him. This is a novel that deals with, uh, it not just deals with surrealism, it is a surrealist novel. It is a surrealist novel in the sense of the surrealist movement in England, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the Andre Bertons, the, 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 not in surrealist movement, I should say, in, in France. It, it's full of surrealist, actual surrealist paintings coming to life. Um, and 
interestingly enough, since we were talking earlier about Nazis as villains, it has Nazism. It has a section of it set in 1941. It has to deal with the French resistance. It has to deal with somebody who's, who I actually knew somebody was part of this movement. Uh, Varian Fry was trying to help escort refugees over the Pyrenees to get out of occupied France. That's a major part of it. And it's, again, uh, something that probably doesn't need to be developed more than at novella length. And from my point of view, I think that's a healthy development. I think it's healthy that if Walter John is doing a novella and that's what it takes, uh, if China is doing a novella, it doesn't need to be a novel. One of the other things on my list is a novella by Kids Johnson, uh, The Dream Life of Velvet Bull, uh, which from everything I've heard, doesn't need to be more than a novella. We need to probably float a little conflict of interest warning here, Gary. Uh-huh. I acquired and edited impersonations by Walter John Williams, and I acquired and edited The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow by Kids Johnson. Well, you might as well add Ellen Clages to the list while we're at sure, it. Sure, sure. Well, I mentioned it then. But, but my point is, these are, okay, maybe you're the one who's doing this. And if so, congratulations. Thank I'm you, grateful no, to you. I like the novella being sort of, resurrected as something that can be published as a standalone. Okay. First of all, let us be clear. It's a total fiction that novellas are getting greater prominence than they used to have. Let's not pretend that. PS Publishing founded themselves publishing major new novellas, including one by uh, uh, China Mieville back at, back in the day called The Tain, which was a, a major right. story yeah. in the history of his craft. Tor, this is their second go-round at publishing a major line of novellas as standalone books. I applaud them. I'm working for them. I think it's a wonderful thing. It ain't new. So novellas have always been a vital part of the field. They've never been as hard to sell as people say they are, and there's always been a regular market for them. However, right now, driven by our perception of how people may or may not read digitally and otherwise, we're uh-huh. trying to give them greater focus. Nothing wrong with that. It's just not a new thing. Tor.com are doing a spectacular job, and they're publishing a lot of it. And, in fact, one of the books mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to, which is relevant right now, for the third time, Kaya Shante Wilson is going to be publishing a major new novella with Tor.com. Well, Tor. He published Tor. The Devil in America, which I love and think is a just a spectacular story. He did Sorcerer of the Will Deeps last year, which is great. And he's got the story Taste of Honey coming out later this year, which I'm also looking mm-hmm. forward to. I can't wait. And I take my hat off, I've got to say, to Irene Gallo, who I do work with, conflict of interest. Uh-huh. And Lee Harris, same thing, who's fantastic. And I actually think, although I wondered about it at the time, that's something that's put to me, that when you come to think about publishers, Tor.com Publishing, as a full name, mm-hmm. is a, a voice that needs to be acknowledged as doing some great stuff, even though I'm working for them, conflict of interest. I guess, I guess, okay, here's my argument as to why I think this is more important. Novellas have always been a part of science fiction. I can show you Groff Conklin anthologies from the 1950s in which he argued that the novella was the ideal form of science fiction. Novellas on Tor.com have always been valuable. I think the idea of publishing these books, even if some of them are POD, which I gather they are, and, and Del Rey publishing the China Mieville novel as a novella. A novella is, a very short novel, that's all it is. It's worth paying some money for. It's worth buying mm-hmm. to get a copy of. And I think when a novella is perceived by readers as a book, it reaches more readers than when it is perceived by readers as a very long story. Maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, I think Tor.com is actually testing that market okay. right now. Tor.com are 
a well-formed, well-funded, well-run mass market publisher. And they are yes. doing a great job with the books they're doing. And they're doing a lot of them. And I, even if I was no part of them, I'd love what they're doing. But I think it's also true that if you have a, if you write a small pre- a novella, sell it to a small press, it will get as much attention as anything else from a small press because That's they don't pro- have the infrastructure to promote it. Well, okay. That it's, it's, it's unfortunate that they don't have the infrastructure. It's fortunate that something which otherwise would be perceived as either a periodical publication or something that appears in the anthology appears as a book. The China Medieval novel is about the length of a gold medal paperback in the 1950s. Absolutely. And so, and it, so is Walter's story, Impersonations. And so, yeah. So to some extent, these are things that would have been at one point in our history, original paperbacks, people would have been happy to have them as novels. They're not novels by awards definitions and so forth and so on. But nevertheless, I think that having the book as a product rather than the book as a part of a product is a huge difference in the way readers perceive it. It is, and I think it is... I mean, you touched on something really interesting. I don't want to get too distracted into it. Maybe we can try to come back to it in a podcast. (sighs) Producing a novella as a standalone Mm -hmm. book, which is uh, seen as having commercial value and that people Mm -hmm. pay money for, is a major, potentially major... um, Blow against the fact, the the, the, the growing tre- trend, this this idea that science fiction has, no, or that the short fiction has no commercial value. Absolutely, and that's important and valuable. You see it as well. I mean, actually, I know that Tor dot com, and I'm pretty sure that some of the uh, magazines, Clark's World, whatever else, actually are very successful in selling, particularly Tor sells standalone short stories as eBooks, and they used to do very well. Oh yeah, as things people pay for. But this idea, pardon me, that you're paying for short fiction has been under assault for. Two decades. And anything that fights back against that's important. I think it's important because uh, the argument I made, I've made this argument many times over the years, that uh, people in the 50s, I was one of them, the 60s and 70s, you would read, you'd read analog, you'd read fantasy and science fiction, you'd read galaxy. You were reading, the, you were buying the editor's taste. And occasionally a short story would jump out at you. But, you know, if there were a, let's say, a Cordwainer Smith story or a Theodore Sturgeon story, you couldn't buy that. You had, in other words, you bought the magazine and hoped to find new writers. Now, a really good novella or short story can reach its own audience. It doesn't have. You don't have to subscribe to Tor.com to find these novellas that are there. All you need to do is log into it, which means that authors become uh, more prominent than they were in the age of the magazines. It's true. And I think I think that's a healthy uh, I think it's a healthy development. Okay. So but what else looking forward to, Gary? Okay, what else am I looking forward to? What else do I got on my list? Um, there's uh, there's a new there's a new Cameron Hurley novel. What do you know about that? Stars or Legion? I know, which is a great Jack Williamson it's, style it's great title. title. I know it's a hard science fiction slash space adventure space opera kind of novel, and I know it was sold to Joe Monty. That's all I know. But oh, I am okay. very I like Cameron Hurley short fiction very much. I've enjoyed the novels of hers that I've read. Okay, well, I mean, this is one of the other, I don't know, I'm not organizing this by publisher, but it just, I'm thinking this way because I was talking to Joe last week at the Nebulas. He's got a new Laura Gelman novel called Cold Eye, which I know nothing about, but I've read good stuff by her. And, of course, he's got the second Ken Liu novel uh, in that 
saga from uh, uh, from the Grace of Kings. Uh, so, so there's interesting stuff going on there, and um, I started reading. Well, I, oh, oh, here's one which is coming out sooner than I thought: a new Christopher Priest novel, The Gradual. Yes, which I gather will be out in September in both the UK and the US. I believe so. I believe uh, Golans in the UK and Titan in the US are publishing yeah. The Gradual, which is uh, interesting. Love Chris's work. And from what he, I, I, I happened to stumble across something on his blog that where he's claiming, okay, this is straightforward. This is not one of those complicated things like the Islanders, where you have to piece together a novel from twenty different short stories, and it's 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 all based on a kind of mythology. No, this is a straightforward chronological adventure story with a reliable narrative. I don't believe a word of what he's not a word about. of it. It's not a archipelago novel. Yeah, absolutely. But still, the Dream Archipelago is one of those things that um, I think it's just uh, one of the great inventions of modern. I don't know whether you even call it fantasy or science fiction. Let's anymore. say literature and leave it at that. Okay, okay, great, absolutely. Um, we've talked about uh, there's. Okay, I've, I've mentioned it. Oh, Sujin Lu's Death's End is coming out from Toro, which uh, will complete that, I suppose. So, um, but which is which is not bad. What do you know about Yoon Ha Lee's Nine Fox Gambit? Nine Fox Gambit is her debut novel, uh, the first book in a major space opera trilogy that she's done, uh, doing. Uh, she sold it to John Oliver. I, I, I read it uh, before Christmas. Uh, it spins off some of her short fiction. Terrific book. Really good. That's one of the most terrific. I mean, when you talk about the future of hard science fiction, that's one of the names that comes to mind. And yeah. it's, it's the sort of thing, looking at that novel will be, looking forward to that novel feels like looking forward to the first Hanu Rayanyemi novel. I'm going to very interested to see how everybody reacts to his book. Um, it's, it, it's quite a book, and I think uh, hats off to, to John and the team for acquiring it. Excellent. So what's next on your list? Okay, I've got a few things. There, there are books that I don't think are going to happen this year that I, I hope happen. Ah. Uh, there's the second Luna novel, Luna Wolf Moon, uh -huh. by Ian McDonald, which is down for September, but which I think won't come out in September. It's, uh, I mean, I loved Luna, as you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, New Moon. Uh, Wolf Moon's now the middle book of a trilogy. I know for a fact that Ian hasn't finished it yet. Uh huh. So the chances of it getting out for September seem, you know. Uh, there's also a, I mean, you talk about novellas, there's a, novella called The Locomotive's Graveyard that's due out from PS Publishing, along with a collection of, of uh, Ian's Mars stories. But and there's he, the best of Ian McDonald. Is what, sorry? Right. What? The best of Ian McDonald is... That's out. Uh, that's out, okay. That's that's out. Right. Yeah, it could, I mean, it was due out last year, early last year, but it finally came out in April, I think, at EasterCon in the Ooh. UK, I believe. Okay. Books I'm looking forward to that I think are actually happening. Ah, okay. Good friend of this podcast, Alistair Reynolds has a major new novella, a new novel, Revenger, that's due out Revenger. from yes. Golans in August, September, I think. And this, I mean, this doesn't sound like it's related to anything he's done before. I love Al's work. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in this, in the Arthur C. Clarke book he just did. So I'm really happy to see this one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Delia Sherman has a major new YA book due out from Candlewick in September called The Evil Wizard Smallbone which should be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. Mm. Um, 
2016 is not a great year for anthologies, Gary. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I can't comment on my own, but the, you know, there hasn't been a lot in the way of major science fiction or fantasy anthologies. However, uh, Saga Press is going to publish what I think will be one of the two or three major fantasy novel anthologies of the year, a book called The Starlit Wood New Fairy Tales that Nava Wolf has co-edited with Dominic Persien. That could be interesting. And I'm really looking forward to that. That's coming out in October. The other major one has just hit the shelves now, so I can't say I'm looking forward to it, but I have read a chunk of it, is the Mammoth Book of Cthulhu that Paula Garan has edited for Constable Robinson. And for all that, it could have been, frankly, a pretty tedious affair. It's mm-hmm. a really good book, and I really do recommend really? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's some really interesting stuff in there. Uh, Paula's uh, a really uh, smart uh, editor. I mean, she's really worth – her stuff's really worth it, uh, is, keeping an eye on. Is, is, is one of the trends of 2016 that uh, is to sort of reclaim parts of Lovecraft? Because okay. we've already talked – we've no. already talked about Velidbo. We've already talked about Kids Johnson. We've, we've already talked about Victor Laval's The Ballad mm-hmm. of Black Tom. Uh, now you've got a collection of Cthulhu collections. Uh, you, you've got last year, I guess we had Daryl Gregory's Harrison Squared, which was covered of Innsmouth and Dunn's uh, sort of Lovecraftian. And we had Matt uh, Ruff's novel. Uh, yeah, and, and and so the year in which HPL finally allegedly disappears from the uh, icon of the World Fantasy Awards, there are suddenly various strategies for reclaiming him. I'm going to say yes and no. Yes, I think it's time because we can see the books happening. No, I don't think it's uh, a th- a new thing at all. I think we've been, you know, like a, a decades-old python, Gary. I think we've been attempting to digest HPL for a long time. And you get different generations of, of writers attempting to reinterpret and incorporate and understand uh HPL and, and, and his oeuvre, and I think you're now seeing the latest batch of them. And so you do get Victor Laval and Matt Ruff and um, Kidge and uh, Caitlin Kiernan, who's been doing major works in that sort of an area, and all kinds of other people doing it as well. So, I mean, it's fascinating that the oeuvre is open to it and has had it happen, because ar- arguably the, 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 myth, the, the Cthulhu mythos has had it done as much as, or as, as much or more as anything else I can think of. Oh, you're you're probably right, and I, th- I I think that to some extent, this is not a reclaiming him so much as a revisioning of him, an undermining of him. A, but but on all of these books, there is an acknowledgement, uh, which I have to admit, sort of I had to go back and forth on that some things that Lovecraft did, he did better than anyone else. I think that's true, but I've got another variable I'm going to throw at you, Gary. And mm-hmm. I think I'm right. That that I'm gonna, I hadn't thought about this before at all. Ah. Off top, I think I'm right. I think it's Lovecraft because he's out of copyright. Well, that's an easy. Oh, that 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 is such a publisher's, anthologist, editors, publishing professionals' attitude toward what otherwise would be an. Before, no, before you, no, 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 no. Before you th- think that I'm being horribly cynical, because I'm not trying to be horribly cynical at all, what I'm saying to you is the Lovecraft oeuvre, and if you're uh-huh. in Canada and it just happened, the James Bond oeuvre, yeah. uh, is, is, is doable. You can't 
redo Conan because it's under copyright, even if you were influenced by it and you want to right. reabsorb it. You cannot, and I know people would want to do it, you cannot reprocess Tolkien because you will have, you will be taken right. to pieces. So one of the reasons, I mean, yes, the mythos is a, the Cthulhu mythos is a major thing in the history of the field. Uh, it was absorbed and fell in love. Now it's absorbed being reprocessed and being recast and undermined and whatever else. And that's very true. But one of the reasons is it's possible for a lot of this other stuff that we would culturally process. And this is a whole other podcast again. That's not, th- th- those other things aren't on the table. So that's why it doesn't happen. I, I think you're right. I mean, it, it probably is true. Although I don't think, I haven't, I've not actually read Kids Johnson's novella yet. It's good. The it's really good. I, no doubt it is. I doubt if there's anything in that or anything, I know there wasn't anything in Victor Laval's, even though they're very specifically mapped onto specific Lovecraft texts that would have violated any copyright at all. No, there's nothing, oh, that's not true. Uh, really? Randolph Carter appears in uh, The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow. It appears a, in the Dreamlands. That's not a trademark. It, it's it, the Dream Quest of Velvet Bow is uh-huh. a retelling of the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath in reverse or, order of events from the perspective of a middle-aged female uh, yeah. mathematics professor, and Fine. it definitely uses what would in modern era be copyrightable material. There's no doubt Plus, about it. Absolutely. Uh, However. Uh, I, I, I think it's part of what American literature is starting to deal with. First of all, it, it, it has a weird, perverse effect of canonizing Lovecraft more than he had been canonized before. Uh, British writers went through this a few decades ago with Kipling. How do you deal with the fact that Kipling is a horrible imperialist, but he's Kipling, mm-hmm. and he wrote very well, and he was a pioneer in science fiction, and he wrote good horror stories, and but he was Kipling, and he was an imperialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a Kipling in the no. U.S., but we've got Lovecraft, who was a racist, uh, and and I think coming to grips with him is something that's going on now, at about the same remove that the British writers had to deal with when they were dealing with Rudyard yeah. Kipling. I will say this is one of two works of Kids Johnson's that's doing something similar. Uh-huh. Next year we will see The Riverbank come out from Small Beer Press. Mm-hmm. This is a novel-length work, I think about 60,000 words, so a little bit longer than the Walter John Williams story we talked about. And this one is obviously from the title, a reimagining of, Ke- of uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows. Except yeah. this is, the way I always think of it is, Delia Sherman and Ellen Kushner move into the riverbank on the opposite side from uh, Mole. <laughs> That's pretty much. And I, I've, I've, I've read a piece of it, and it's terrific. You know, so something else to look forward to. Anyway, back to books to look forward to, Gary. What, what do you got next? Let's see what else is on my list here. Here, I have a, oh, there's a new Robert Charles Wilson novel. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to expect. The last one I thought was a little bit disappointing, frankly. Uh, but again, uh, it's funny because his name came up when I was listening to our very first podcast. Uh, and I will still say this, that as a literary writer, um, he writes consistently good science fiction, but it starts out as consistently good literary fiction based on family relationships and and, 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 and divorces and parents and children and, and, and all this kind of stuff um, always works out. So you could – I've always had this sense with, with Wilson, and I've only talked to him once, that he's a mainstream novelist who just can't help putting science fiction into his books. And the science fiction ideas are always huge ideas. So there's this balance 
especially in the Spin trilogy, which is his best-known collection, a best-known series, um, of really mind-blowing science fiction ideas on the one hand, and very precisely detailed family dramas on the other. Yeah. And he's been pretty consistently able to do this. So uh, and, and he, he's also a writer. If I get disappointed by one or two of his books, I'll still look at the next one because I know he's a really good writer. Yeah. Um, uh, we mentioned Caitlin Kiernan. She has Cambrian Tales coming out from Subterranean Press, which has done a lot of a lot to promote her, her work over the last uh, several years. And one we didn't mention, but you were you were talking about. Um, well, we weren't talking specifically about women writers, but one of the big novels in the fall is going to be Connie Willis's Crosstalk. Uh, Connie Willis is somebody who has, first of all, can do something that very few writers in any genre can do, and that is to write fast-paced, very funny screwball comedy dialogue. Yeah, and she's done this in novellas. She's done it in short stories. Uh, John Kessel has done some of it. Uh, Swanwick has done some of it. But she really knows how to do a kind of um, um, 1930s Howard Hawks, uh, Preston Sturgis screwball comedy. And this is the first time I've seen it done at the length of a major novel. Well, I was going to say, you have a copy of the book, right? I have a copy of the book. And it's like 500 pages long, isn't it? It's 500 pages, which is way long for a screwball comedy dialogue. It's a novel about telepathy. i got to tell you, I'm a long-time fan, didn't love... Uh, the, the the last pair of books which were way too long I'm, uh, and I know this is a book that she's written while there's another book hanging out there the UFO right, Roswell exactly. book the Roswell book um, this is one that on my list is on the yeah maybe she has to win me back with this one Gary she lost me Um. okay part of what made the uh, Blackout All Clear novels work for me was that there was a lot of of sort of British Ealing comedy in them. There was a lot of... She, she, she does this sort of thing very well. Minor characters, scruffy kids uh, who, who, who get into trouble but end up saving the world. It, it was probably over-plotted, and it was very long. I enjoy her comedy writing. If you look at some of the short novels she did um, about Hollywood, some of the short fiction she's done, She's very, very good at doing that kind of comedy. And comedy in science fiction and fantasy is still appallingly rare. Still, long-time fan, need to be won back. We'll see what happens with that, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, since you've brought up a book that nobody in the UK is going to read, uh-huh. <laughs> I'll bring up one that they will. I'm really looking forward to Dave Hutchison's Europe in Winter, the uh, third and final yeah. book in his Shattered... Europe or par- uh, whatever they call it, Fractured Europe series, uh, which probably will take another sideways slant at the series, much as the preceding book did. The first two books are terrific, a tragedy that they're not appreciated more in the UK, but very much looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, what about Ken McLeod's new book? I've got it. It came out in May. You got it. it came out in May in the UK. We couldn't even get a review copy of it. I asked Orbit, nothing. Really? And it's the first of a trilogy. The second one comes out before the end of the year. There's two out this year. Ken McLeod is one of these writers. I don't know what went wrong. He's brilliant. I mean, everything I've read by him has been very, very impressive. He is... It, 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 I was reading, actually, one of the books I was reading recently. We've not talked about nonfiction at all, but um, there's a very good book 
coming out from the series I edit, I'll admit it. It's the University of Illinois Press series on Ian Banks by Paul Kincaid. And it, it, one of the things that becomes very apparent is that Ken McLeod and Ian Banks were kind of two variations of the same career. Yeah. Uh, they, they were childhood friends. They obviously helped each other get into fiction. Uh, Ken is one of the most politically sophisticated science fiction novelists I know. He's never had particular success in the United States, I know. I don't know how he's done in Australia. And a new novel from him ought to be bigger news than it seems to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's a, he is a major left, uh, politically left-wing science fiction writer. He is a, one of the top two or three uh, science fiction writers in Scotland. It says a lot for Scotland that there's two or three or four of them, but there are. Well, uh, yeah. I, I bought it right away, and I would have read it if I wasn't already sort of up to my neck at other things, but uh, it's just out. And uh, one that, yes, if, if we were in a position of recommending books that are already out, I'm eager to get the time to read it just as soon as but I it's can not coming, get to it's it. Not coming, it's not coming out anytime soon in the U.S. August. August, it is. You must have missed it in the list. It is coming out. I think it's August I've, in the I've U.S. Not from, seen, I've not seen the list in the June yeah. issue. I'm uh, pretty out. sure that I emailed you a copy of it. Uh, there's pretty. Uh, <laughs> there's pretty. Okay. You didn't look at it. Okay. Uh, there's pretty much a. Um, that explains something that I said to, to Marianne before we podcast. Okay. Ah. Uh, <laughs> okay. This book is due out in August, and I think the fa- the second book is due out in November in the U.S. So they'll, okay. you, you, that, they'll be out. I've got. Only, I'm only going to name one more book, Gare. Okay. I, then I'm going to say. By the way, the thing that I'm saying is, I was. I said to Marianne if, that if you'd looked, got the list and looked at it, you w- you would have mentioned. Even though we're supposed to stop in December, you would have to have mentioned, mentioned Stan's book coming out in February because Stan Robinson's got a major book oh, out in February. But we can't mention that because that's not this. T- the last book I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to this one really eagerly. And if I wasn't overcommitted, and if it wasn't a friend. Uh, oh, sorry, if it wasn't everything else, I would have absolutely distorted the, my friendship and gone for a, get, tried to get a copy of Golden Hand by Garth Nix from Garth. Obviously. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is the latest book in the uh, Old Kingdom series. It is the direct follow-on from Abhorson, uh, rather than from the rather terrific Clariel, which came out uh, just recently. And it's one of a pair of new books Garth has out quite closely together. He has uh-huh. this major new YA book, Golden Hand, coming out in October, and then a book called Frog Kisser coming out next February or March or something. Uh, YA about frogs and princesses and such. But I'm really looking forward to Golden Hand. Clariel was Garth, so good. Garth is somebody else who can write humor very well. Uh, we were talking about Connie Wills. Garth can do that. Michael Swanwick can do that. We should we should do a podcast about humor in science fiction. We could also do a podcast about how the World Fantasy Award judges, God bless their cotton socks, sometimes completely miss really good stuff right under their noses. And the fact that Garth's work has never been on the World Fantasy Award ballot is a mystery never. that I can't never, to my knowledge, That's that I cannot even begin to explain. Let me throw out last two books, and we can complete, complete this, because you are not going to mention this, because I've already read Drowned Worlds. People should look forward to it. And there's a reason for that. The theme, it's, 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 it's full of terrific stories. It's a theme anthology on a theme which is very important. But at the same time, it's kind of retro because we used to see these theme anthologies all the time, which are very specific. Um, Groff Konkin used to do Thinking Machines, Invasion of Earth, Drowned Worlds, and then Behold, Bridging Infinity is coming up before the end of the year. Am I right? October, yeah. Part of, part, part of the thing. Here's a thought. 
and we can I, I can leave you to meditate over this before we do another podcast. Uh, and I was thinking about this partly because of the massive new Vandermeer anthology, which is called the Big Book of Science Fiction. And as we mentioned earlier, that repeats the title of a Goff Conklin anthology. And my thought was this. If somebody were to do an anthology, not mentioning anybody in particular, of course, this year or next year, and called it Adventures in Time and Space, what would it look like? Big. No, I don't think so. I, I, I already I, have... I don't, but Gary, okay, I already have two titles hanging around that if I was going to do a book for them, they're what I would do. I kind of still want to do an anthology called New Adventures in Sci-Fi. Okay, that's, okay, New. let me see. New Tales of Space and Time was a Helium McComas original anthology they did for, I'm going to say, maybe Avon Books in the early 50s. Uh, but that's the same kind of thing. If you were to take one of the classic anthologies of the late 40s or early 50s, and use that title, The Omnibus of Science Fiction, New Tales of Space and Time, Adventures in Time and Space, all of which were anthologies that essentially celebrated astounding science fiction, a little bit of startling stories. How would you do that today? Could you even do it? I don't know, Gary, uh, because, I mean, okay. I, I don't know. You'd have to look very carefully at the underlying themes and structures in that original book and see if there are sympathetic resonances in the modern field that could do it. It's like, I was glibly going to say somebody should redo Dangerous Visions. But the idea for Dangerous Visions is actually, in the modern era, pretty tedious sounding. Um, And I don't know that you actually could. I mean, all all other practicalities aside, I, I don't know that you could make that fly. And you certainly couldn't meet the standard of it. Um, it would be as, as interesting to do not so much a, a great anthology as a forgotten one. Well, yeah, I, 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 I'm sure that's true. I, I just think it's interesting to reconsider that the last 10 or 15 or 20 years of science fiction, what is it represented by? Not in the sense of making an argument, which is the Vandermeer's argument, that science fiction is worldwide, is global in a way we haven't recognized before. But what basically these early anthologies were saying was, this is what science fiction readers read over the last 10 to 15 years. And that would be interesting to try to think about. But we are way past our time. We've oh, we recommended okay. books. We have talked. We've basically managed to put two podcasts into one podcast. So we have. super value for money for everybody. So until the next time, then, that will be... The Coot Street Podcast. <laughs>